Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Timothy Casby. Timothy is the president of Zoho, a software company that offers a suite of tools covering nearly 50 independent applications from front office and back office products within an offering called Zoho One. Prior to joining Zoho, Timothy was the chief information and digital officer of the Warehouse Group, the chief operating officer of Gloria Jeans, and the CIO of Sears and Trexon and Reliance Industries. In this interview, we discuss why Zoho has decided to stay private and the freedom and long-term outlook the company has as a result, and how Zoho banks everyone's salaries for three to five years. We cover Zoho's schools of learning and why IT needs to move away from being a function that supports the business to one that drives the business. We cover why Timothy decided to get a divinity school degree and why he believes in the need to engage religious communities in science and math. Lessons he's learned in cross-cultural communication from living all over the world and a variety of other topics. Timothy Casby, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. It's my pleasure. It's nice to be with you, Peter. Yes, it's always great to speak with you. Well, Timothy, uh, you are the president of Zoho. And for those who are listening who may be less familiar with the company, take a few minutes, if you would, and just give us an overview of Zoho's business, please. Yeah, Zoho is a... Uh, a SaaS company. Uh, we operate in over 180 countries um, and um, growing at breakneck speed at the moment. But also, Zoho is a very unusual company um, that operates with different principles to most of our colleagues in in the Silicon Valley. So, um, you know, certain principles that we have uh, allowed to inform our thinking in this is, you know, Simple things like, uh, you know, every em- employee enjoying a healthy meal and a good night's sleep um, every every night, every month, night, quarter night, year and night. And that has made us do things uh, slightly differently in the sense that, you know, we've stayed private. We have not borrowed money, either private, public or from a bank. And, you know, so this is really a homegrown bootstrap type culture um, that helps each and every one of us discern if we are spending our resources on things that matter to our customers. Um, and that's, you know, helped us really think vertically and horizontally in the way, even the way we integrate a suite of our apps, um, you know, and the way we share data between those apps and build a very robust, extendable ecosystem of apps um, that empowers both individual as well as group productivity in a collaborative setting. What this has also done, Peter, is, you know, let us offer a price that is just impossible. I mean, when you think about Zoho One, which is our our operating system of the business, as we call it, um, you know, it comes with 47 different apps that help you digitize end-to-end business, um, okay, from your email productivity, CRM, sales enablement, inventory, you name it. Um, and you know that's dollar a day for employee. I mean that is that, that is a part of you know staying private to do the right thing by our customers um, from delivering the price of uh, promise of the cloud as well as uh, you know making technology you know not only uh, available but affordable. 
um, in any all parts of the world. Uh, so it's really a global technology democratization agenda that this company has. Um, and then the other part of Zoho that is really, really uh, encouraging for me is it really is a employee driven business. Uh, I mean, even if our founder has a requirement for some product or, or something he needs done, you know, he really, the, the discernment for that requirement is made not by the CEO or the founder, but actually the product manager, the, the employees that are in charge of that product, as well as the employees that are closest to the customer. So employee driven is not simply a tagline for us or a value statement that hangs in a frame in a conference room. But it's something that we live by every single day. Um, and, you know, the other part I want to uh, talk about here is we are super sensitive to privacy and security. And I mean, privacy to the extent, Peter, where we have removed Google Analytics and all other trackers from our sites and products. Um, we don't read our customers' data and never will fathom selling it to the highest bidder in the marketplace of what we now call the surveillance Capitalism, which is to quote Zuboff, right? And she is, um, you know, when 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 I talk about this with my my friends, Peter, they think, oh my, that's actually a very radical thing to do, removing Google Analytics off your site. Uh, but when you read Zuboff, you know, she she says a business model that seeks growth by cataloging our data, our every move, our every emotion, utterance, and desire is too radical to be taken for granted. You know, and she gets very overheated with metaphors. And, and my favorite one is she likens the big tech platforms to elephant poaches, okay, and our personal data to ivory tusks. And she says, you're not the product, but you are an abandoned carcass. And, you know, when you when you read those words from Zuboff, it really is um, not that radical what Zoho has done in removing all the trackers, all those guys that actually monitor our customer journeys on our sites and then sell it to somebody else or, or develop product themselves to compete against us. So it, it is really unusual in that sense that we would take, take a, a, a stance to a point where, you know, it may even hurt us, but that's how much you value privacy. And then, you know, the, everyone says things, you know, um, flow from the top and and you know the leadership and how the ceo acts and behaves affects everything you do well you've spoken to sridhar and you know he's a deeply deeply technical guy you know spends his waking hours inventing programming languages to help improve developer productivity but you know during this pandemic you know he saw he lives in a village in india of all places and he saw these kids, you know, uh, they, they don't have Zoom in villages. <laughs> so he decided to start a school. And now he, he runs that school. Um, there's 150 kids that come, you know, six days a week. Um, they also want to come on Sunday, but he has to tell them to, you know, take a rest. <laughs> he needs a rest. You know, then he rides around on his push bike and he just bought a, a, a second-hand auto rickshaw that he drives around you know, and, and recently he started lobbying for alcohol reform in those communities because families there are ravaged by alcoholism and substance abuse. And Peter, if you've come up anywhere close to that, you know what devastating effect it can have on families and children. So he's taken up that cause. So, you know, Sridhar at, at that level, 
um, you know, really sets the tone for all of us. So Zoho, to me, is a very confronting organization in the sense that our customers are confronted with $1 a day proposition. What excuse do you have? I mean, I had a board member once say to me, hey, Zoho is not enterprise priced. <laughs> and, you know, I had to say we have to unlearn a lot of the bad habits that enterprise software companies have taught us in the enterprise. That Zoho truly is priced so that, you know, it confronts as to what excuses left on the table for you to not digitize. And, you know, we, we have seen with the growth we have seen, we've seen that many companies now are really moving fast in digitizing their companies. And from an employee's standpoint, it's a confronting thing because, um, you know, IT generally uh, attracts very smart people. You know, you have to be good at maths, um, you know, science subjects. And, you know, knowledge puffs of pride. But Sridhar's stance on life and his humility, not only in words but deeds, is an example for all of us of authentic leader that is driven by unleashing the good in the arc of history we, we are enjoying today. You know, even the last week, he started a second chance program. Where there are so many people that have kind of given up because of their failures or whatever. And he wants us to, you know, adopt someone and mentor them and help them get in a job. Um, and that is like a, that, that, that sets the tone, Peter, for what we focus on and what drives us, right? So we are a very, you know, profit oriented software business. But at the end of the day, our focus is really on why are we doing the things that we are? It's very, very interesting. There's so much that you shared there, which I greatly appreciate, and so much that makes it unusual. You, you, you were right. I've spent time. I've, I've been fortunate to spend time with Sridhar Vembu, the founder of the company who you referenced, and the most unusual um, orientation that he has uh, in terms of the way in which he has organized this this company, but also organized his life around him, as you point out. I want to go back to a point that you raised uh, in brief and delve a little bit further into it. This is an organization that's been around for a couple of decades. It's grown to, um, by, by some estimates, into the billions of, of revenue. And it is a private company and has never, as you said, even uh, accepted so much as a bank loan to say nothing of venture capital. And it, it strikes me that everything that you mentioned, aside from Sridhar's personal attributes and philosophy, which obviously imbue the culture in some really remarkable ways. The fact that this organization has never had to pay somebody back, very rare in the software industry where the typical pathway is you you know begin your business, you establish a value proposition and some customers, and then as quickly as you can, you seek venture capital, which then puts you on a pathway towards either acquisition or an IPO, since of course the investors need their return and so that they they will be demanding that at some point the fact that you've not had a anyone to pay back no financial event to ensure uh provides liquidity to those who've invested in the company has allowed the organization this remarkable liberty and freedom to pursue what in for, for other organizations simply cannot be in many cases and and I wonder uh, t- Timothy you know, as somebody who has worked for so many different public companies, it must have been uh, just almost jarring and, and certainly remarkable to come to understand the philosophy behind the organization. Is that a fair a fair hypothesis? Yes, absolutely, absolutely, Peter. And you know, the, the and not only different organizations, Peter, but I worked in retail. <laughs> you 
which is like a completely disrupted segment of uh, you know our world um and you see the attitudes and um, and thoughts that leaders uh, leaders have in those scenarios compared to what you do in this which is uh, a completely different outlook on life and a completely different outlook on measuring success measuring um, profits measuring you know how much is enough um and and how you treat your employees it, it really was jarring yeah, because um you know in the retail scenario the profit margins are so low and um you know the uh, tech is uh, you know what i would uh, not don't apply to all but you know some of the ones that i worked in it's almost like a graveyard because you you know you you stand in the midst of this technology landscape with thousands of apps which are you know so old don't work run properly and really cause suffering to the end users including the customers and see what's happening in that segment today um to a company that uh, is so attuned to their employees and customer success um you know to the point where you know we 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 just don't have a doubt about what we will do and to what extent we will go for our customers and you know look look at the pandemic and what that has done right um shiva's philosophy is that you know we bank um everyone's salaries for 3 to 5 years so that we we can have a good night's sleep um when when pandemic or some downturn hits um we are not panicked you know we are not firing people left right and center um and doing these resource actions we are not um you know giving concerns to our customers saying hey there won't be anyone picking up the phone or if something goes wrong or if they need some change they won't be around we 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 have that that uh, fiscal discipline to ensure that we are there um in the down and the up times right and covid has actually become uh, <laughs> a up for us as a an accelerator of digitization as opposed to a downturn um the business grew significantly um and so from a business side you know we've really really seen um a very positive um positive impact um uh of having this mindset um during uh, what we would think is a bad time um you know this is also give, let us give us some crazy things like we just said to customers you know use our software for free if your business is suffering and we know there are a lot of businesses that are disrupted and suffering and we were able to do that you know over 12000 you know customers have taken advantage of this program um and uh, it is really uh, reignited for us um you know we already as i spoke we already have a huge focus on employees and people but covid and this is you know got us to think even more on what we do for people um you know we've been able to make some big calls like you know we basically are in the middle of unloading all our urban centers and we are moving to villages all over the world you know we love utah you know michigan all of these places um in texas as you know we have a huge plot of land that we're going to build a big, big center we are moving away from all that and making a bold call now to become a a sustainable farming company uh, a sustainable farming saas business in the 10 year next 10 years and what that means is that we're going to buy farms um in, in rural centers you know two acres or more and put a, a office that is maximum 25 employees um 
And we've already got 15 of these um, farms and offices combination um, operational or operational already in the last nine months. If we were uh, lent money by a bank or a VC or some other fund, we would be asked a lot of questions as to what are we doing, you know. Um, but having that freedom uh, to do these things and to actually say to our employees that we are going to be a sustainable farming company in the next 10 years, it's a long, long-term, long-view goal. Um, but those are the freedoms that we enjoy, right? Um, I mean, we we are seeing the unraveling of the whole privacy uh, with WhatsApp and Facebook. I mean, these companies, you know, Google, they, their entire business model is built on exploiting users' privacy. Okay? That's the business model. Um, so, you know, we saw Signal struggling. So we have built our own messaging app now that countries can use called Aratai. And um, it's taking off. It's in beta. And it took us like a month or two because we already had components and we diverted some resources to it when we saw um, the the backlash based on some of the privacy issues um, end users are suffering today. Um, and, you know, we are able to move quickly and do these things that uh, others would question, you know, um, the same thing on the marketing side, right? We, we basically stopped all marketing because we saw the business is growing during the pandemic and we put all that money to hire people. Again, you know, people have been a whole reignited focus for the company. And, and that is, um, you know, uh, that is because we have this freedom of not owing anything to anyone. Um, the, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of companies, you know, will say, Hey, what are those people doing? Why do we need so many sales people? Why we keep hiring this support staff? Um, you know, what are the ratios? You know, what's optimal? But, you know, we have a, we, we have a focus here that, you know, the, the, the values are that people need help at this time. So we've been pouring into that and uh, been able to do that, which is, um, which is really, really a, a jarring <laughs> coming from, not only other companies um, uh, in private, uh, private and public sector that I work for, but especially in retail. Very interesting points you raised, Timothy. I know another area that uh, you're passionate about, which uh, is also, I think, an unusual move uh, that that the company has made, is really thinking outside of the box in terms of how to how to build talent. Uh, there are the typical ways that most companies do, do so, either by you know, recruiting at universities um, or, and or finding experienced hires to fill their ranks. Um, y- your company is uh, becoming the university, uh, finding people who wouldn't per- perhaps wouldn't otherwise go to university and giving them opportunities to develop skills for their lifetimes uh, that happen also to be skills that are useful uh, to Zoho and essentially bootstrap the development of of your talent pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about the the, the genesis of this idea and the progress that the firm's making towards that? Yeah, I think yes, we can because you know there's a couple of things we disagree with here. Um, one is that we disagree with the, the whole concept of student debt. Right? <laughs> we don't like that. <laughs> um, the second is that you know we we dislike the way. Uh, you know, uh, kids are taught. Um, even the way they sit in the classroom is almost like a factory. You know, you're producing, um, and the way people are lined up in a factory and they train to work in that kind of industrial age. 
So the, the new school we have built now, uh, you know, completely has taken focus away from marking grading to actually seeing that the children are growing with knowledge that they need in math and science and English and so on. Um, with Zoho, um, it's such a different culture, you know, the culture of humility, customer service, um, you know, spending on what matters to our customers. Uh, that it, it is hard to find um, that culture and, and folks with that that built in them. So um, what we have done is created this uh, Zoho Schools of Learning. Um, and uh, it's been a, a fascinating um, experience for us um, because what happens here is we take, um, you know, 15-year-olds that are um, in, in high schools um, who are not necessarily the smartest or, or, you know, the top of the class or the guys who will go to, to Yale and Harvard, but, you know, uh, folks who have humility, who are uh, service oriented and, um, want to work hard. Um, and we pick kids like these and, um, basically there are three uh, different disciplines. We train them in over a period of two years. And that's in, um, you know, technology in business and communication. And, um, uh, we'll be adding more to the curricula in coming days and months. So, um, you know, and, and while they are, uh, at our school, we pay them to go to school. So they end up with knowledge, um, and skills uh, that are useful in a, in a tech firm and no debt at the same time. So, um, you know, now nearly half of our employee base comes out of these schools of learning. Um, and that will start to explode more, you know, as we open these in US and Europe and other parts of the world. What that has done is, you know, we have, uh, we have a very strong uh, population that is so young, um, that has turned into our culture carriers because of these schools of learning. And at the same time, you know, we've got the highest tenure in, um, in, in tech industry. You know, most people, uh, work at Zoho for, you know, 15 to 18 years, um, which is unheard of in, in tech companies. And that's because it is, you know, um, HR really is our strong point in terms of how we look after our people and the things that we have done for them and they see it. Um, and, uh, and the schools of learning is a huge part of this. Um, we are in the middle of, uh, you know, a program where, um, as this, um, as these kids start gaining skills. So, um, after joining for a few, few months, we are calling on our employees from all over the world to start, um, mentoring them remotely. Uh, or if you're in person, then that's even, even better. But, uh, a uh, lot of us work from all over the world, um, and um, therefore, um, you know, we are ourselves learning so much from from these uh, from these kids as we mentor them and learn um, about how they've come up uh, to be where they are. So it's been a fascinatingly enriching experience uh, seeing this uh, uh, this come to fruition. Mithi, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your career path, which is such an interesting one, uh, and it remarkably varied both in terms of companies, but also in terms of geography. Um, you worked at Reliance Industries as Chief Information Officer in India, 
Uh, you spend time in the U.S. as CIO of companies like Sears and, and Trexon. You became the uh, chief operating officer of Gloria Jeans in Russia, uh, the chief information and digital officer of the Warehouse Group in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and now the president of Zoho, uh, a, a company founded in, in India, but as you mentioned, with offices uh, uh, in, in other places as well. I wanted to actually ask you, a bit about your time as a chief information officer. Uh, you're a former CIO who now, in many cases, serves uh, as, as uh, or has CIOs as your your customer base. But talk a bit about what the experience as a CIO, how that prepared you for the um, the growing r- responsibilities and roles that you took on beyond that role. Yeah, it um, is not <laughs> a straight line as. <laughs> It may look to you at this point, Peter, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it is, uh, it is a, it is a 15-year journey for me. You know, that's when I started the CIO, um, career. And, um, it was very different, um, when I started to what it is now. I think that, uh, you know, the, the CIO role, uh, it, it really is a, a very, very powerful role in the sense that you have a wide angle lens. Um, to see how all parts of the business work and how they operate. And, uh, and, you know, if you have empathy, then, you know, really helps you empathize with your customer, um, customers and your colleagues. Um, and, you know, that wide angle lens is something that, um, that is very few executives, um, in, in companies, uh, enjoy that. So, so I think that that is a very important thing for all CIOs to keep in mind that, you know, think of how you can do things and help people in areas that you're not necessarily comfortable in, you know, um, and, and step out of your comfort zone to, to, to help others. And, and the CIO seat actually gives you a fantastic opportunity to do that. Um, the other one is that the technology actually has seat at the table in most companies today. And, and what I mean by that is, look, every business is a tech business today. And if you are not realizing that, then, um, then definitely, um, the, you're open for disruption in a huge way. And when you can say that, Hey, listen, we are a tech company that happens to sell clothes or a tech company that is in, you know, building locomotive or a tech company that builds plane engines and things like that. The focus changes. And here you have, you know, a chance of, you know, moving away from IT being a function that supports the business to IT and technology that can actually drive the business, that actually can innovate your business model and can actually give you some predictive um, alerts on what's on the horizon based on what's going on because technology is moving so fast. It's like the fastest moving, changing thing. I mean, look at today's example, right? And, you know, we have moved from, you know, Facebook to Instagram to Twitter to now, um, you know, the clubhouse. <laughs> Who would have thought, uh, that, you know, this thing was going to come on the heels of TikTok, uh, to now a, a live forum that is, um, you know, bringing in millions of users daily to just join in chats with people. And especially in, in, in an age where you have to social distance and, and so on. Um, 
what a fascinating field we are in today. I mean, we really are in the gilded age of technology dominance. And um, this was not the case, Peter, when I started. You know, I had to evangelize this to the CEOs and to the C-level executives when I started. So CIOs today have a, a, a huge ad- advantage in terms of how the table is set for them to really impact the organization with data, with analytics, with information, with technology, um, and uh, you know, play a very, very critical role in in transforming the business, in in seeing additional value, in partnering. But you know, it it will mean um, you have to step out of your comfort zone to do things that you may not be responsible for, but you have to help other people uh, given the insights and the data that you can you can get a view of. You know, my my friends tell me, my CIO friends tell me that I've taken on very difficult assignments. <laughs> so, you know, it really is up to the courage that you're wired up with um, to take that on. But the fact remains that we are traversing through the most amazing age of technology and CIOs really can win and win for their firms and their leaders and their customers. I wanted to ask you also, Timothy, you have a very interesting educational background as well. You have a computer science degree, which will not surprise anyone. Also an MBA, again, not surprising. But you also have a degree from uh, Duke's uh, ministry school. And and uh, I'm curious a little bit about kind of how you landed on uh, that as an area of focus, if you don't mind sharing, and the extent to which that colors uh, the, the way in which you've thought about your career as well. Yes, so that's a really interesting question, Peter. This the, the idea to do the studies itself started um, at Intrexon, uh, which is a biotechnology company that does uh, you know DNA research. Um, and when I joined the company, I was among the few, maybe two or three, that didn't have a PhD. And uh, we got talking to the, the founder and the CEO at the time, and um, you know. I said, listen, you know what? I'll, I'll uh, join in the band of all these PhDs and maybe start studying. And that's how it all started. And then when I looked at, um, you know, what area, um, I wanted to, to study and really devote myself, a couple, couple of, um, things that motivated me to go into the, the, the divinity school. Um, so the, the program that was, uh, was combined with Pratt School of Engineering, divinity school and the policy, uh, Sanford policy school at Duke. The, my belief is that, you know, the technology horse with AI and robotics and all is already bolted. It's gone. And we see on, on the television in terms of how the government policy makers are reacting. Um, and, and how far behind that world is. Um, and there's enough uh, focus going on um, from the policy and, and, and regulation standpoint. But one area that I observed is that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the folks in ministry and those who serve um, and those who are into this whole business of culture making, you know, looking after the poor and the downtrodden and all that, you know, there is no voice from them in this. So, you know, I took on the studies to really encourage them to get involved um, because AI is going to have a massive effect on the workforce, um, automation. Um, and we need to start thinking about this 
other organizations, the non-governmental organizations, the charity organizations, the religious organizations that are in into this uh, culture-making business and see how we can engage them into this debate. When a war happens, if some, you know, culture is destroyed, you know, all the NGOs move out, uh, you know, the, the armies and air force goes and does what they have to do. But there's a couple of kinds of people that never leave. You know, the imam is always there in his mosque and he never leaves the people. The priest is always there, um, you know, um, in his temple or a church. And these folks are there with people no matter what happens because their view and commitment to, to humanity is very different um, to the ones that operate in a different world of technology or, or government and so on. And I think that we are going to need help from them as we look at the, look at the change AI is going to drive in our culture and in communities and, and countries. Um, and that's the reason, you know, my thesis really is one of engagement with that community that I have not heard, um, the voice. Um, they have been the silent majority, so to speak, um, on the topic of AI when in fact they should be involved because, you know, when jobs are taken away, it affects you, um, not only from an economic point of view, but also you start wondering, um, you know, who you are, um, and, and the self-worth and all of those things are in those realms where, um, you know, the community in the ministry areas need to be equipped to speak to this. Um, and so my, my thesis is basically a, a, a invitation, um, really to engage in that community which I have not seen, uh, engage with us, um, on, on the technology side. Um, and there are several reasons for that, you know. Um, I mean, if you look back at, uh, say, just the Christianity, right? The, the roots of it are in, in technology with the, the starting of the press and uh, Martin Luther's Reformation. All the scientists' roots go back to that event, uh, for modern science. Um, before, um, Martin Luther, there were like 48 innovations that I have studied. And since, uh, since Martin Luther is just uh, almost infinite, you can't count. So, um, there is no fear from, uh, from that community to engage with science and math and, and what we are talking about here. Because, um, you know, my question to them is, you know, when, when we offload a lot of the menial tasks that humans started doing during the industrial age, when those menial tasks are, are offloaded to AI. Does that mean, and now we have more time to be human again? And what does it mean to be human again? You know, like the whole thing about love and fellowship and hospitality and all that, um, you know, and we're seeing that, like the, the whole rise of Clubhouse in the last few weeks, Peter, is a human cry for fellowship. You know, people are strangers are dropping into these rooms, listening to others' conversations, raising hands, getting engaged and having a dialogue using this amazing technology platform. So it really is a, is a, a it comes from a, a concern um, and an opportunity that is unexploited uh, for what is about to happen um, in our world uh, with the rise of AI and uh, automation. Timothy, a, a moment ago, I highlighted the many countries you, you have uh, lived in from India to the US to Russia to New Zealand. 
uh, among others. Talk a bit about your perspective as a citizen of the world. You seem, uh, you know, at a, at a time where for many people, the world has gotten so small, uh, especially during the pandemic where it gets small, has gotten small for all of us. You have a very expansive point of view uh, because it's actually just across a decade and a half that you've lived in the countries that I've just mentioned. Talk a bit about your own perspectives about the, you know, uh, as a as somebody who ha- is this citizen of the world, please. Yes, Peter, it's a fascinating journey because, you know, I was born and brought up in a tiny village called Wai in India, which is in the Deccan Hills of, uh, of Maharashtra, um, south of Bombay. And, um, you know, uh, growing up from that um, to then traversing the world um, and the boardrooms of the fortune companies has been a fascinating journey for me. Um, but so, some of the lessons, Peter, uh, it's like people are people, right? Um, and I think that the, the number one thing is connection versus command and control, right? So be it um, Mumbai or Chicago or Russia, um, you know, people want connection with you. Um, so s- spend time, you know, getting to know people, uh, getting to know their culture, their uh, their world, and um, you know, it requires stepping out of your own, but it's uh, it's really, um, you know, a, a very fulfilling fulfilling uh, experience. I mean, you know, we hear a lot about you know how cold the Russian culture can be, and it's true. I mean, they are probably the most persecuted people over a very long period of time. Um, when you think of the czars and think of, you know, the, the, the what happened under Stalin and what's going on, um, it's a, it's a very tough place. But I'll have to tell you, Peter, that I really miss that place and I miss my friends there because uh, once you're friends with someone there, they're so warm to you, you know, so it's really opened my eyes that you can't really judge, you know, uh, a, Russian culture based on what you see in Hollywood movies and so on and so forth. Although a lot of it is true, but you know, it's, it's, it's different. Um, you know, another thing about Russia is that when I got there, Peter, um, there was like a program going on where a software company from, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona was selling this software and they actually had sold it. Um, and it just hadn't been gone live for five years or so. And I just sat down and ask my team different reasons. And, you know, I got so many technology reasons, so many requirements reasons, so many, 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 many things. But then suddenly it dawned on me that no one in the technology team spoke English. And this software was in English. And all I did, Peter, was that I said, hey, listen, do we have a Russian equivalent of this? Um, kind of an ERP type thing. And they said, yes, of course we do. I said, okay, you have 90 days to prove yourself, to give me real-time visibility into the whole entire supply chain. Can you do it? This team was so excited, you know. So the, the net net of this is that we were able to unleash, I mean, the company has completely reduced the dependency. I mean, they spent over $30 million on this Scottsdale company with zero results. And now the dependency is completely removed, they're self-sustaining. But, you know, this is something that my partner shared with me. And what she said is, listen, Timothy, you grew up in a village. That's why you could relate to those people and could actually empathize that they didn't understand English because you had to work hard to learn English as a third language. 
And guys who were coming to sell that from Arizona did not even have a clue about that whole aspect of what that cost cultural um, thing looks like, how hard it is for someone who doesn't speak English to actually adopt their software. And you know, the system was launched in like less than 90 days. It's still running. And it's just one of those things, Peter, that you, you learn as you traverse to the world that, you know, languages and just small things like these matter in terms of how successful you are, how successful you make the companies. And lastly, what I want to say is anyone wants to do something like this is remember the world is quite a dangerous place now. I mean, you know, I, you, you know that I, I, I was caught in the bombing in Mumbai when I worked at Reliance at the Taj Hotel. Um, I was kidnapped in Russia by the Ukrainian bandit on the Ukrainian border. Um, you know, and New Zealand, where I'm speaking to you from, um, I thought it was going to be like the most paradise, but we had a Christchurch uh, bombing um, with the white supremacists. So uh, the images we see on TV today, even including in the United States, uh, tells you that uh, to be citizen of the world, you know, the, you have to redefine safety and take some risks. But the reward is really great in terms of the impact that you have on the world and the people from all different cultures and how much they enrich your life. And it's been truly rewarding for me. Very interesting topics, uh, definitely speaking. So Timothy Casby, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about your remarkable career journey, uh, your experience at Zoho, uh, the many descriptions and depictions you offered of of what makes the company different and special. Um, It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. Really enjoy talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. Please join us on Thursday when my guest will be Atticus Tyson, the Chief Information Officer, Chief Information Security Officer, and Chief Fraud Prevention Officer of Intuit.